Hello, hello. This is Kathy Colas Audiobooks, and today we have episode 10 of The Roadrunner Cafe by Jamie Zernt. Sally White starts to think back about her decision to have an affair with Wiley and of the time they spent together. Here we go. Sally White parks her rental along the shoulder just short of the overpass and turns off the radio. An interview on NPR had been playing, but she stopped listening a few miles back. Something about a musician who'd written a book about addiction, about how he admired lost people, those who were drowning in flame. It made her want to get drunk. Drunk and naked. Maybe drop her own cans off the overpass. God, the feeling that must run through a person doing something like that. Hadn't she heard once that murderers got a sort of high from siphoning the life out of others? Sally couldn't imagine feeling that way about it, but there must be a reason people killed other people. The delicious power in it. She rubs the bandage at her temple. Eighteen stitches it took to sew up. All from one can of orange crush. Sally had once had power over Wiley, complete and total. He'd been a good man when Sally had met him, a father, a husband. She stares at the overpass and, not for the first time, finds herself imagining the boy. Not the boy. Carson, dropping the can a fraction of a second later so that it impales itself face high causing Sally to cross the center line and collide with an oncoming car. It could have easily happened, but it didn't. Instead, Sally walked away from it. Sally lived. The question was, should she have? Was it fair that the boy would grow up without a father because of her? And it was because of her, wasn't it? How could any argument be made otherwise? She knew almost immediately when Wiley came into the clinic with the family cat that she would do nothing to stop it, no matter who he was, no matter whose he was. He had, from that very first minute, belonged to Sally White somehow. And Wiley knew it too. That was the best thing about it, how there was always this other, more intimate conversation running just beneath the surface, of whatever mundane thing they were discussing. So while they talked about the cat, while Sally told him they needed to switch her to a gentler food, while Sally was stroking the cat's fur, her eyes going from the cat back to the man she'd just met in his mouth, the small twist at the corners that suggested he knew every thought she'd ever had, every urge, knew every unloved part of her that wanted to hand itself over to him. While this was all happening, and while nothing was happening, Sally knew she was letting it, and then this nothing turned into an affair the likes of which she'd never experienced before. And then, eventually, into the difficult decision to end it, and then into a noose and a child trying to kill her as she drove home from work. She puts the car in gear. She drives under. She drives through. 
She'll have to get used to it. There's no other way to get to the clinic. She'll eventually stop wringing her hands and slowing as the overpass approaches. She'll eventually stop craning her head under the windshield to look for figures overhead. She'll even stop having nightmares of bodies falling off bridges and landing on her truck. Someday, she'll get her life back. The one before she met Wiley. The one where she was lonely and unloved. The one where she was happy. The vacation had done little to help. She knew it wouldn't when she left abruptly one day, telling co-workers she'd be back in a week, that there'd been a family emergency. Everybody knew damn well what the emergency was. She had destroyed a man's life. She had destroyed an entire family. Sally White passes through the town and is surprised, as always, when nobody stops to point and jeer at her. When, she wonders, will she get her scarlet letter? But even that wouldn't be enough, would it? What she did was so much worse than simply sleeping with someone. That's the restaurant. It's open again, and she's renamed it. That's good. She remembers the stories Wiley would tell her. Happy stories. It was strange how much she knew about his family, and stranger still how little they knew about her. Sometimes, afterwards, as they lay there with their bodies weak and trembling, he would talk about them, and it seemed somehow natural and right that he would. Sally was his true love. She deserved to know these things. At least that's how it seemed in the beginning, before the devouring, the consuming of one another, turned into something dark and unnatural. That was the only way Sally could explain it. Things became unnatural. She pulls into the drive of her house, feeling both relief and nausea at being there. She'll have to sell it. There's no question about that. The only real unknown is whether or not she'll move from the town entirely. On the passenger seat is a dog collar. She isn't sure now why she kept it. At the time, it just seemed like the right thing to do. It had belonged to a little stray Siberian husky the police brought in. The dog had bitten someone, and since there were no records of rabies shots, by law they had to euthanize him. And so they could test the brain tissue, somebody also had to saw the head off and send it to the lab. Normally, Sally would have had a vet tech do it, or one of the volunteers from the high school they sometimes used. But the tech had been sick, and she couldn't very well have asked the receptionist. Strangely, a coyote had been brought in over the winter for testing, too. A beautiful creature whose insides had been torn to shreds after eating a battery. For some reason, that had gotten to Sally. Certain things in life just weren't supposed to happen. A coyote eating a battery was one of them. A father hanging himself was another. The Siberian husky's head had to remain refrigerated, not frozen. Sally remembers having to remind herself of that when she grabbed the dog's ears, twisting it until the sound of the spine snapping had made her flinch. Next was the ripping and cutting away of the spinal cord, like a sawing through wood. Then, dangling the body over the tub while she waited for the blood to gurgle out. So much of it for such a tiny thing. Finally, the remaining threads connecting the body to the head gave way 
and Sally robotically placed the head in a plastic bag, taping and labeling it before putting it in the cooler. She told herself it was just another body to dispose of, another thing to be sent to the lab. She's so completely lost in the memory in trying to convince herself that it didn't affect her, didn't remind her of how Wiley died, that she nearly walks right past it. At first, it just seems curious to her, like maybe she'd forgotten she'd planted it. But then she realizes what it is. Who it is? A chill runs through her. Course, this must be the town's response. The scarlet letter she'll have to bear. She puts her things down right there in the grass and kneels before the tree. The dead leaves scattered around her like so many accusations. The tree is dead now, too, or dying at best. Maybe it was meant to be symbolic. Maybe she was supposed to look at the dead tree for the rest of her life as some kind of reminder. She nods to herself, clasps her hands together as if in prayer. I am stronger than you. I am here, and I will not run away like you did. I will face whatever they have in store for me. I will take on this whole damn town if I have to. I will bloom with life. I will love, because that's what the living do. You are nothing but a ghost now, and I eat ghosts. I saw their heads off and stuffed them into plastic bags. Sally gets up, places a hand on the bark, casts a wary glance around the yard. She takes the collar from her pocket, the one belonging to the husky, and slides it over one of the branches like a bracelet. It feels like someone is watching, someone other than the tree, but that's probably just guilt playing with her. She picks up her things, heads into the house. Must be difficult believing in a god when you obviously don't have a soul. It was something he had said to her once, during an argument. Wiley had been a devout atheist, always giving her a hard time about her beliefs. He said the word with such disgust, such contempt, that it always reminded Sally of her father talking about unions, how they were destroying the country. To Wiley, beliefs were for children, with science being the only thing deserving of the word holy. But that had nothing to do with Wiley's comment that day. What he had meant was that Sally was cold, that Sally had no heart, that Sally was a bitch. But Wiley would never use that word. It was beneath him. Instead, Wiley found subtler, more profound ways of kicking her. It was a particular skill he liked to brandish on special occasions. Like the day Sally told him it was over. The house feels hollow to her. Empty. Like she's stepping into an echo. She doesn't have any pets besides Charlie. The fish Wiley gave her. But Charlie is just a Siamese fighting fish. He's not a real pet. It was something people always kidded Sally about. Or pretended to kid her about. She liked to joke that she was a midwife without any children of her own. She thought that was funny, but she knew others found it more pathetic than anything. Sally feeds the fish. He looks good, his fins all silky and flowing behind him like a banner. He 
Eating the fish makes her realize she's hungry, but she doesn't have the energy to eat. She leaves her things on the kitchen table, heads straight to the bedroom where she burrows beneath the covers. The new covers. Took a long time to get the smell of him out of the house. Sally had gone on an incense campaign when it felt like the scent of him was choking her, burning stick after stick until the smoke got into the wood and the bones of the house. It was nothing short of pest control. Outside her bedroom window, she can see the mountain. You're still there, Sally says quietly. Still waiting for something, too, aren't you? The cold. Sally can't seem to get that out of her body either. Nearly a year now, and it's still there. She threatened to tell his wife once. She never really meant it. There was no way she would have ever done anything to harm his family. Besides, after all the stories he told her, it was almost like she knew them. And sometimes she wondered if he'd done that on purpose, told her about them, about all the little moments in their lives with such great detail, so that she wouldn't ever tell them. No, she tells herself. Wiley may have done a lot of crappy things, but that wasn't one of them. He loved his family. Sally knows that. She remembers the story he told her about Georgie as a little girl, how she liked going to the dollar store, and how she asked him one day if the people that worked there got a 10% discount. He thought that was the funniest thing, said it sort of summed Georgie up. An old soul. That's what Wiley always called her. And this coming from a man who claimed not to believe in them. You have the soul of a sandwich, Sally. What kind of sandwich? You're missing the point. I'd say there's quite a difference between the soul of a Reuben and the soul of, say, a PB&J. Then a PB&J. That's a funny sandwich, isn't it? You can cut it into different shapes. Didn't you tell me once that Carson would only eat PB&Js if you used a certain cookie cutter? What animal was it? I can't remember. Sheep. He would only eat sheep. Then I'll be that. I'll have a sheep soul. That okay with you? Sally wraps the comforter around her, lifts the bottom with her feet, and drops it down again so that it tucks under her. It helps with the shivering. Remembering the conversation almost makes her laugh. Almost. Which is as close as she gets to laughter these days. The laugh, or the idea of the laugh, inevitably crawls back down her throat and buries itself there under the grief. The selfish, selfish prick. That's usually the thought that pushes the laughter down. She burrows deeper into the comforter, thinking how it's one of life's great injustices, that it isn't possible to bring a dead person back to life and put them on trial for the crimes they've committed. Life. That's what she'd give Wiley. A life sentence. There's a moth on the window. Sally hadn't noticed it until now. It's not moving. Just sitting there, waiting. The whole of the immense world stretched out there just beyond the window pane. A pet, Sally thinks. I have another pet. Then, just as she's considering a name for it, it occurs to her that the moth may very well be dead. She pictures herself getting out of bed, walking to the window, reaching out to stroke the fur on the wings, 
then the moth falling like a miniature brick to the floor. Everything I touch dies, she thinks to herself, and the absolute melancholiness of it, the absolute high schoolishness of it, makes her smile. That's how things are for her now. Her emotions delicate and swinging around inside of her without any cadence, without any melody, without any kind of footing. The moth moves, like it's heard what she's thinking. It's just a leg, a twitch of sorts, like how a cat's tail will quiggle when it's antsy and wants to go outside. There's longing in the moth, Sally's sure of it. Maybe it doesn't know that big blob out there is a mountain, but it knows something is out there. Maybe a cool wind for her to float on. Maybe a little danger. All the things that set a heart to beating, wings to fluttering. She should get up, call somebody, let people know she's back. Maybe tell someone about the tree. But who? And what would be the point? Instead, she goes to the fridge, finds a micro in the crisper. Why never was much for Sally? Too much pressure to taste things, to appreciate things. Just looking at a glass of good wine could make her feel intensely inadequate. Whenever Wiley was at the house, she'd have to wait until he left if she wanted a beer. He was the soberest atheist she'd ever met. You'd think beer was a mortal sin the way he shunned it which was funny, seeing as what they were doing together. Sometimes, three or four times in an afternoon. And Sally wasn't blind to the irony of it all. She told Wiley about her infertility issues, about her marriage and how it had finally fallen apart after the second one died inside her. There were other things she could have tried, but she just couldn't go through it all again. It had done something to her. Changed her somehow. The marriage ending, though, that came as a relief. It wasn't something Sally missed or even thought about much anymore. Just died along with everything else. She crawls back into bed, cradling the beer. The moth is gone now. She leans over, checks the floor. Nothing. You're alive. Good for you. Maybe it was time she got a real pet. Her husband had taken all of the animals, a furious parting shot that had missed the mark, because there was no hurting Sally anymore. Everything inside her had already been taken. She was barren in every possible way. Take them, she told him. Just be good to them. She had vowed after that never to have any more pets. She would care for them. She would dole out her love to them in 20-minute increments during exams save their lives, and hand them back to their humans. But she would never own them again. Her clients often referred to their pets as their kids. It was almost always an older woman who did this, someone without any children who, or so it seemed to Sally, clung to her pets like life vests. Like if anything happened to her poogee or tiger or bootsy, they'd slip beneath the surface of life and disappear. Sally had convinced herself she didn't want to become one of those people, convinced herself she didn't want substitutes. But maybe being one of those people wasn't so bad. Tomorrow, she decides. Tomorrow she will go to work, and she will take home the first stray they get. And another. 
She'll fill the whole damn house to the ceiling with fur and love. She'll bury herself under a mountain of life vests. They'll swim together or they'll drown together. The decision floods her with a kind of surrender, a kind of peace, and as she lets herself drift off to sleep, she watches the window for the moth to come back. But instead, the mountain is there, staying, healing, begging for something. But what, Sally isn't sure. She imagines the winding road leading up to the mountain as a leash somebody had dropped. Okay, Sally White murmurs into her pillow before disappearing into sleep. I'll adopt you too. And there you have it. Don't forget to join me on Monday for episode 11 of The Roadrunner Cafe by Jamie Zernt. To check out more of my work, go to my website at kathycolas.com. That's C-A-T-H-I-C-O-L-A-S dot com. If you're an author looking to turn your book into an audiobook, email me at kathycolas at gmail.com. Let's talk. And if you like the podcast, please leave a review or share it on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you on Monday.